If you have a Bible, um, we're not going to be in a specific place in the Bible tonight because if you, we're going to be multiple places, but if you know we're in a series right now uh, answering questions that you guys sent in over the break. And so past couple of weeks we've been talking about uh, rest and Sabbath. Last week we talked about spiritual discipline. And tonight we're on question three talking about how did we get the Bible. And so tonight instead of studying a passage in the Bible, we're going to talk more about how do we get the Bible that you have in your hand, on your phone, uh, things like that tonight. And so, and like Brandon already mentioned, next week I'm very excited about having uh, Greer, uh, Greer Jones. She got married. So Greer Jones is going to be here. She's a Christian counselor in town, uh, used to be in college ministry. And so she's going to come and share about faith and mental health, mental health, excuse me, and how they fit together. I'm very excited about that. So you don't want to miss next week. Uh, great time to invite a friend if that's something that would connect uh, with them. So, but for tonight, we're answering this question how did we get uh, the Bible? And so, um, Go ahead and say, it's going to be a lot of information for you tonight. Um, and so if you're a note taker, maybe a few things you want to jot down. We are recording this, and so um, it'll go up on our podcast probably tomorrow. So if, so if you miss something or whatever, it'll be out there on the internet. Um, you can go to the Apple podcast deal or really anywhere you find a podcast. It should be there. Just search Alberta Baptist College Ministry. Um, so most of our messages are out there if you ever want to look them up again. But, um, but for tonight, my, my hope is not just to like berate you with information, but to really encourage you uh, to know that the Bible that you have in your hand or on your phone is trustworthy, that it's accurate, that it is God's word, and that you can go to it um, for truth. And when you hear you know, criticism and claims against the Bible being trustworthy, you know, I'm not going to give you every response to every <laughs> criticism out there, but I hope to give you some equipping to be able to think, uh, think well through some of these questions, okay? And if you have a question that I don't answer tonight, uh, I'd love to, you know, hear it from you, and I probably don't have the answer because I'm not a, you know, scholar on the <laughs> trustworthiness of the Bible, um, but I have studied some, and so I'd love to help you, you know, find the answers to that kind of stuff. I can't promise to have it, but we'll, we'll learn together, right? Isn't that the part of the fun? So, um, but tonight... As we start, uh, I did want to start this way. Uh, have you heard of SETI before? S-E-T-I? Ever heard of SETI? The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. It's this science division um, that really boils down to about $30 million that was spent to build these giant radio telescopes in this big field, searching for signs of life. It's like a giant space microphone, essentially. And back in 1977, they finally heard something from space. And I want to play it for you real quickly. Uh, Joseph, you'll play that audio. Maybe it gets better. I forget. There it is. You hear them? They're out there, y'all. They're speaking to us. It's E.T. All right, you can stop it. It sounds like that for two minutes, okay? So <laughs> that's it. We spent $30 million to get that, all right? <laughs> that's where your taxes go, is to get, spend $30 million on a broken microphone sound, okay? So, and that's, that's 77. We've yet to hear anything like that ever since then from what I, uh, I can tell, okay? So, but, so why would we do this? Well, I mean, we have the money, we have the, the technology, why not, you know? But if we want to get more philo philosophical about it, you can maybe say that as we do this kind of stuff, listening for these voices from space, you know, we're searching for something bigger than us. We're searching to find our place in the universe, to make sense of our existence as people on the earth. But honestly, and this is a cheesy transition, but I think it makes sense. If we really want to find a voice speaking to us that really tells us our place in the universe, we honestly don't have to go very far. We can go to God's word, 
we go to the Bible. It really is given to us for that. Okay, there's your Jesus Juke science thing for tonight, okay? But, um, but that's what we're gonna talk about tonight is how God's word, the Bible, is given to us to be a authoritative word of God to us to make sense of our life, to make sense of why we exist in the world, okay? So I have three goals for tonight, really four. Um, first off, we're talking about what's so special about the Bible for a minute. Um, second, we'll talk about how we got the Old Testament. Then thirdly, how we got the New Testament. Fourthly, how we went from those Greek and Hebrew manuscripts to you, okay? I'm gonna you know, be briefer in some of those, but that's our main plan for tonight, okay? So first off, what's so special in the Bible? Everything on your sheet is a lot of questions for the most part, but I gave you a few things that are information. So let's talk about why is the Bible special, okay? Some of this is obvious, but it's important. First off, we remember the Bible is God speaking to us in human words, he uses human language to communicate to us. The word Bible, you may not know this, comes from the Greek word for book. So the Holy Bible means the Holy Book. That's what it means. The Bible was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, over about 1,500 years by about 40 authors, which is pretty amazing considering how accurate and consistent that it is. It has 66 books, if you didn't know. It has 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, but it's really more of a library of books. And honestly, Old Testament, New Testament are really unfortunate words because the Old Testament makes it sound outdated and old, but it's not. You can really think of the Old Testament as promises made by God, and then the New Testament are promises fulfilled by God in Christ. So don't hear Old Testament and think it's outdated. It doesn't matter. But there's really three specific things I want you to understand about this, the, the specialness, what's special about the Bible. And the first is this word inspiration. I gave it to you on your sheet, that the Bible is God's inspired word. So what does that mean? So, well, the Bible has human authors, but one divine author. Uh, the Bible was written, like I said, over thousands of years by all kinds of people in all kinds of literature, but there are certain ways that it wasn't written. Like the Bible wasn't co-authored by God and man, like people partnered together. The Bible wasn't robotically dictated. Like Muslims believe the Quran was like literally given word by word to uh, Muhammad. Uh, Mormons believe that the Book of Mormon was, was given to Joseph Smith for like this divine, uh, there's these golden tablets that he went to a closet essentially and God gave him these word for word translations. That's not how we believe the Bible was written. Um, but we got the Bible as Christians when people who were prepared and motivated and guided by God spoke and wrote according to their personalities in the circumstances that God put them in so that their words ultimately were the words of God. But God used human authors and inspired them in that way. We call this divine inspiration. Maybe you've heard that before. Um, the writings of the Bible, according to 2 Timothy, are God-breathed, that they're breathed out by God. It wasn't the authors or the process that was inspired, like maybe Joseph Smith would say with his tablets, but instead the writings in the end are the things that are inspired, that we would call uh, divinely inspired. Technically, in in theology, we call this verbal plenary inspiration. If you want the technical word verbal, and then plenary is P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, verbal plenary inspiration. It's verbal because it means the literal words of the Bible are inspired, which, by the way, that's the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic, not the English. Um, but it's verbal. But also plenary means every part. It means all of the Bible is inspired, not just the parts that you like. Uh, there was a heretic back in the day, not long after the time of Paul, who decided he hated the Old Testament, that it was a different God that was wrathful and mean and, and not the God of love of the New Testament. So he literally, to his followers, told them to cut every part of the Old Testament out of it. He threw away the whole Old Testament and then cut every reference of the Old Testament out of the New Testament. He was left like a little pamphlet, essentially, for the Bible. And he's also not, um, another example of this kind of thing is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson did a kind of thing where he took literally 
by a razor and cut out the parts of the Bible he didn't like and made what we call the Jefferson Bible. That's not how the Bible works, right? We accept every part of it as being inspired. Um, but the authors of the Bible were carried along by the Spirit to write and speak what they did, kind of like a, a sailboat. I used that analogy last week. But like a sailboat's carried you know, by its sails you know, that are filled with wind. That's a, kind of an analogy of how the writers were inspired. It's, there's some mystery here, but that's an analogy. But the Old Testament authors, consider them, multiple times said that they were writing down God's words. The prophets, or Moses, literally claim over and over again that these are the words of the Lord spoken to them. And then Jesus affirmed the authority of the Old Testament in his ministry. And if he was God, then he says, if he trusts the Old Testament, then we can trust the Old Testament. But even in the New Testament, even as the letters that would make up the New Testament were still being written, some Christians began to realize that God was adding on to the Old Testament with some authoritative writings. And many of these writings, or really all of them that were authoritative, came from people that had either met the risen Jesus or had eyewitness accounts from the risen Jesus. I'll give you two examples. In 1 Timothy 5.18, which we'll eventually get to in our series in 1 Timothy. But in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul identifies words spoken by Jesus that eventually became Luke's gospel. Actually, this will be this Sunday, actually. Come to think of it, because I'm, I'm bringing this up in my sermon Sunday. But in Luke, in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul calls some words of Luke's gospel, which are quotes of Jesus, he calls them scripture. So we see even before Luke's gospel was completely finished that Paul's already calling his gospel scripture. And then in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter refers to Paul's letters as scripture as well. So even in the process of the New Testament being developed, we see Christians saying, hey, like th- this is something God is doing. We're beginning to recognize that this is authoritative and this is something that God is adding to the scripture of the Old Testament. Okay, so that's the first idea is inspiration, that there is this God-inspired directive happening in the Bible. The second word I want you to know, or it's really two words, is infallibility and inerrancy. Okay, infallibility and inerrancy. Infallibility simply means it's not capable of being wrong. So the Bible is not capable of being wrong because it's God's word, God's word. Also, inerrancy means it's without error or without mistake. Now, there's, if you know anything about this, there's tons of debate about what exactly inerrancy means. We're not going to get into all that tonight. But the basic question is, are there errors or contradictions in the Bible? Are there errors or contradictions? Well, the short answer is no, but there's a little bit, little bit more you want to add to that because it, the short answer is no, because the author of the Bible is God, and God can't lie, and God can't make mistakes. But there are some complications to think about. But first off, think about how the Bible itself claims that it is true, and it is the law of the Lord. Psalm 19 says that the law of the Lord, which is God's word, is perfect, sure, right, pure, true, and righteous. Second uh, Timothy 3.16, like we mentioned, says all scripture, all the Bible, is breathed out by God. So the Bible, it has contained no errors. But here's the deal. If we come to a place in the Bible where we think there is an error, we got to start by asking some right questions about it to begin to understand the scripture in question. Because while it may sound like a circular argument to say that the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true, <laughs> or it says that it is God's word, that, while it's a circular argument, is kind of valid if you think about what the Bible actually is and think about even how trustworthy the Bible proves itself to be in its accuracy under examination. Let me give you just one example of how accurate the Bible is. We could spend our whole night tonight um, talking about this. I heard a, a lecture one time about internal, internal consistencies in the New Testament, how the New Testament has examples even within itself about how trustworthy it is, but that's way nerdier than we're going to get into tonight. But let me give you one example from the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, 
There are 36 uh, transliterations of ancient kings. Uh, transliterations mean like they took the Hebrew in like, just, or they took whatever language they were, the king's name was and turned it into Hebrew. Um, so there are 36 instances of translations, transliterations, excuse me, of foreign kings. So if you go to other records of that time outside the Old Testament, if you go and start looking up other extra biblical records like monuments or tablets from that time, you're gonna find that the Bible is gonna check out with every record of that time in every detail. It's actually really cool because if you, if you go and consider other ancient records of kings, like there's this one called Manetho's Record of Dynasties of Egypt, where this guy Manetho, he recorded all the different pharaohs of Egypt for a certain period of time. Well, if you look at that record and compare it to the biblical record, well, of the 140 kings that Manetho mentions that we have records of, he only gets it right 49 times out of the 140 he mentions while the Bible is 100% accurate in every king that it ever mentions. So the Bible actually holds it to be more accurate than any other ancient record of kings even at that time. And this stuff gets just affirmed more and more with archaeology more and more over time. If you ever want to Google biblical archaeology, it's a fascinating world. And it keeps affirming more and more that the Bible is accurate and true historically. It's really, really cool. So, but also it's important to know that when it comes to errors in the Bible, some people try to make claims about the Bible that it's not accurate, it's, inf- it's, in- it's fallible because of the, some of the stuff it says that's simply like figures of speech. Like consider the fact that the Bible says the sun had risen, but yet we get that the, the sun doesn't really rise, that the earth goes around the sun. So to say that the sun has risen is a false claim in the Bible, is, it's a figure of speech. We get that, okay? And obviously some of the speeches in the Bible, like in Acts, those are obviously summaries of speeches that were probably way longer. If you read some of the speeches in Acts, they take like five minutes to read. You know that Peter preached for longer than five minutes. He probably preached for like five hours, okay? So there's summaries sometimes, and that's nothing uh, wrong about that. Even some of the numbers, the, the amounts of people that lived in a certain city or amounts of people in this war, they're obviously rounded numbers. There's nothing wrong with them rounding the number to a certain point. Um, and not giving the exact uh, number in the end. So that kind of stuff we have to understand. These are simply figures of speech and also poetry. Like the Psalms say that the trees of the field clap their hands. Trees don't clap their hands, y'all. We know that. So this figure of speech is poetry. We can't use that to say the Bible isn't accurate, but sometimes claims like that are made, okay? So, that, so there's inspiration. There's infallibility slash inerrancy. And lastly, why is the Bible special? It's because of its sufficiency, all right? So during the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s, the reformers took up this slogan you probably heard before of the five solas. Uh, one of them was sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And what they meant by that is that scripture alone is our highest authority as Christians. It doesn't mean that, our, that scripture is our only authority as Christians because the Bible tells us that we should, we should submit to the authority of pastors, of government, of, of parents, things like that. You know, and obviously the Bible isn't sufficient as authority for everything in the world. Like the Bible's on a textbook. And so if you're like a civil engineer, don't use the Bible to build a bridge. Like it's not teaching you how to build a bridge. It teaches you other things, okay? Um, but to say that the Bible is sufficient is to say that the Bible teaches all we need to know about God. It teaches us all we need to know about how to be in a relationship with him. All we need to know about the person and work of Jesus. And all we need to know about where God is moving history. It's sufficient for all of those things. We don't need any extra revelation from God. We don't need any extra word from you know, a special prophet these days. We've received all we need from God in the Bible. It's all we need for spiritual truth and for life with him, okay? So it's sufficient. Uh, we don't need any special devotionals from people claiming a word from the Lord for you for that day. The, the Bible is there. It's, the Bible is sufficient for you, okay? 
Um, not that the devotionals are bad, but there are devotionals out there I've heard of that literally say, this is, God gave this for, to me for you. It's like, no, the Bible is given to you, okay? So that's what's special about the Bible. It's inspired, it's inerrant, and it is sufficient for us. So with all that said, let's talk about the Old Testament for a minute, okay? So where do we get the Old Testament uh, from? Where did it come from? Well, it began with Moses. He's the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible, it began with him keeping a record of the nation of Israel with its early wars, the words it received from God, the laws, all those kind of things. And then over time, Moses, through the inspiration of the Spirit, he began to flesh out these books of the Bible, the first five books. God gave him extra revelations. We had like Genesis, where he gave him revelation of the creation account, things like that. So Moses begins to flesh out these books, and it turns into the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books called the Torah, written by Moses. Now, he probably used some extra sources pulled in. He obviously used his own experiences. And he obviously had some help because the, the book, the um, Deuteronomy talks about how Moses, oh, sorry, Numbers talks about how Moses dies. I don't think Moses wrote about the details of his death, okay? So he probably had someone helping him out there, okay? But from there, other prophets and kings and scribes begin to add on to the history of Israel. Through kings, through the exile in Babylon, all this stuff gets preserved and passed down over time to the Jewish people. And at some point, someone, maybe Ezra in the book of Ezra, someone begins to like edit all this stuff and compile it into a collection of what they began to recognize would be called the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament because it was the only testament. It was the scriptures. Um, but in this process, they would carve in stone. They had um, wooden tablets covered in wax they would carve in. You know, they had papyrus, remember that stuff from history class with the Egyptians? They had papyrus they would write down on as they would preserve these writings. Um, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, obviously, except for some Aramaic in a few spots. Um, but it was all written down in that way. So that's where we got it from. That's where the writings came from. But how was it preserved? Like how did it, you know, because obviously those original writings Moses made did not make it for thousands and thousands of years, right? They eventually disintegrated. So we don't, today, we don't have like the original Genesis that Moses wrote, okay? It's long since uh, disintegrated, okay? Um, but what happened is to preserve scripture and to preserve the law, early in Israel's history, people began to take up the job of being a copyist, where their whole job was to copy these books of the law, these books of the Old Testament, and make these detailed copies. And this stuff got incredibly precise, and they developed this whole kind of like art and science behind it. They would literally count every letter of the book, and they would take co like a copy of another copy, and they would you know, count every letter and say, okay, what is letter 427 to say? Let me look it up here. Let me look up here. Okay, it's beta. Okay, it's beta or bait because it's Hebrew. And they would check the two, and it, okay, it checks out. They had the, all these random, really intricate ways to make sure there was like quality control, that they were doing the accurate copies of this. And then in the late 400s, there's this group that comes around of Jewish scholars called the Masorets or the Masoretes. These guys come around and they like standardize and perfect this art of copying the Old Testament. They added vowel marking because Hebrew before this had no vowels or no vowel like markings. It was like you just understood what the vowels were. Hebrew's wild, y'all. It was interesting to study. But they added vowel markings, accents, and notes to help people accurately read the text over time past them. And today, these copies of the Old Testament, we have some, are called the Masoretic Texts. And they are extremely reliable sources or copies of the final form of the Old Testament. And honestly, your Old Testament you have is really in many ways a translation of the Masoretic Texts. 
Like I have a Hebrew Bible in my office and it's essentially a copy of the Masoretic text um, that was passed down hundreds and thousands of years ago. But for a long time, the oldest copy we had of a Masoretic text was from like 900 AD, which is a long time from the original writings. But in 1947, you may know in history class, the Dead Sea Scrolls got discovered that this like shepherd boy out in Israel threw a rock and hit a pot in a cave and discovered there were scrolls in it. <laughs> and they went and looked at them and it turns out they were like the Old Testament and all kinds of stuff. And they, they begin digging out stuff and they discover all these copies of the Old Testament that had been preserved by this group called the Essenes that were this like ascetic community that moved out into the desert um, back in Israel's history. And they kept all these copies of the Old Testament. But the amazing thing is that if you start comparing the old copies with the new copies, you'll find that they're nearly exactly the same with some like minor variants in like spelling or maybe like a conjunction they added somewhere. But none of those variations change any meaning of the Old Testament at all. Like um, I'll give you an example. One scroll of Isaiah found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's dated to being copied about um, 100 years before Jesus was born. Yet the wording of that scroll agrees almost completely with the Masoretic text that was copied a thousand years later. And that's how accurate this stuff is, that they, over thousands of years, they were able to preserve the accuracy of this stuff to where it was consistent time and time again, to where the copies we have today are incredibly accurate as well. So that's how it's preserved. But one more question, uh, really two more questions. Uh, who determined what books made it in? Who determined what books made it in the Old Testament versus books that, that didn't? Well, this is what we call the canon of Scripture. Not like a canon you shoot or fire, but like C-A-N-O-N. Uh, it's a Greek word that means measuring rod. So it's like a standard measure. Uh, the canon of the Bible it really means that the canon is what is authoritative in the church. The authoritative books that, that claim truth. So to call books of the Bible canon or canonical is a fancy word is to say that they have divine authority. If it's canonical, it has a divine authority. If it's non-canonical, it doesn't have that divine authority. So the first five books of the Old Testament to make it in the canon were easy. They were the Torah, right? Because they were written by Moses where he literally says, hey, God you know, spoke this to me. And they had been passed down for generation upon generation and accepted as true. So the first five books were easy. But then from that, you, they started adding in the Psalms, the Proverbs, the writing of the prophets, and other revelation that God gave uh, those were all built on the revelation God gave to Moses. So like the Psalms and Proverbs and the prophets all check out and agree with the things that Moses wrote. So there's confirmation there. So they got added. And then as these writings agreed with the writings of Moses and as the prophecies came true, which that was the standard definition of how people knew you were a prophet at the time. If you claimed something happened and then it happened, you were a prophet. If you claimed it was going to happen and it didn't, then they killed you because you weren't a prophet. Um, not always, but, um, but over time, as these things began to be written and agree with the writing of Moses, people began to collectively realize that these are also divinely inspired scripture from God. Uh, an, an example here in Daniel nine chapter, sorry, Daniel nine verse two, the prophet Daniel is said to possess a copy of the scriptures, which would have been an Old Testament. Uh, it probably would have been more than just the Torah. It would have been more than the first five books of the Bible, because in Daniel nine, Daniel says that he studied the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, and so Daniel even in that time began to realize that the writings of Jeremiah were divinely inspired scripture. They were divinely inspired words of God. And sometime after the Jews returned from exile, uh, the people recognized that the prophecies had ceased, that they got back from exile after all that happened, and there was a definitive point where people began to realize that, okay, like, 
God is not speaking to us in the same way anymore. Uh, actually, there's uh, three times in the book of Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha, we'll talk about in a second, but three times in the book of uh, Maccabees, which is a history of the intertestamental period. It's a history of the time between the Old Testament and New Testament. But three times in the book of Maccabees, the writer says, hey, we live in a time where prophecy has ended, like where God isn't speaking to us anymore which tells you that the book of Maccabees shouldn't be considered scripture because the, the writer said, hey, this is not like God speaking. He's not speaking right now. And so he's just recording history, okay? So at that point, the Jews begin to realize, okay, the Old Testament canon has ended, that we have received what we've received. And Israel collectively agreed on that for generations to come. There was no debate. All right, but that brings us to the last thing, and then we'll move on uh, to the New Testament, is what about the Apocrypha? And what I mean by Apocrypha, well, around the second or third century, a Greek translation of the Old Testament was produced. It's called the Septuagint. Um, But for whatever reason in that translation, they added some extra books. We don't really know why, but they decided to add some extra books. And over time, as more Greek speakers became Christians, you know, they became more curious about the Septuagint. And they became more curious about, you know, these extra books. Like, hey, should we consider these books in the Septuagint, like, authoritative or not? And there was a split. The Roman Catholic Church eventually said yes. And that's why Catholics today still have the apocryphal books, these extra books in their Bible. So they added them to their Bible, the Latin Bible, the Latin Vulgate Bible. But the Reformers, which would be the Protestants, which is our tradition we come from, the Reformers rejected these books and they called them apocrypha, which means like kind of aside, like not in the canon. And they only used the original Hebrew Old Testament books. And that lined up essentially really with what the church had been using for generations before that, that really the Apocrypha had not been accepted or used really at all as authoritative until in the Septuagint they added it in there. And let me give you three reasons that the Apocrypha I don't think should be considered Old Testament canon, why the Apocrypha is um, not in the canon, it's not truly God's word. Uh, Number one, the authors of the New Testament, they never quote the Apocrypha as scripture. You're never going to find someone in the New Testament quoting the Apocrypha as, um, as, as the Bible at all. They never reference it. Number two, the Jewish people never recognized the Apocrypha as scriptures. It was a new thing that got added for whatever reason in the Septuagint. And then in Luke 24, if you go and read that, Jesus acknowledges that the Hebrew Old Testament only has three parts. He says it had the law, the prophets, and the writings, which would have been the um, terabim, and oh, I forget the Hebrew words. Anyway, it's three Hebrew words, but it means law, prophet, and writings. But he recognized that was the Bible, and that would have not included the Apocrypha, because the Apocrypha was considered a different part than the law, prophets, or writings. And then your fourth bonus one is what I mentioned earlier, that one of the writers of the books of the Apocrypha says, hey, during this time I'm writing, God isn't speaking anymore. So how can God be speaking scripture when the guy says, no, God's not speaking, right? So even in itself, the Apocrypha says it's not on the same level as the rest of the Bible. Now, is the Apocrypha like heresy? Not really. Go read it. It's on like the internet everywhere, all right? You can, you can find it, you know, ask your Catholic friends. Uh, but it's in there. It's not like necessarily teaching heresy. But you, if you read it, you'll find that ultimately it's not super helpful. You can read it as like an interesting bit of, you know, biblical kind of, um, not biblical knowledge, you know, but like kind of spiritual information, but it's not authoritative in the same way. And honestly, you're not going to find, I think, that it has anything that's going to add and be helpful to your faith. It's just kind of interesting. Okay, so you can, I've read some of it. It's interesting, but you're not going to find it to be, I think, authoritative or powerful in, in your life. Okay, so that's why the Apocrypha, I think, should not be in the Old Testament canon. All right, and also to add on top of that, Jesus accepted the Old Testament Without the Apocrypha, and as Christians, we accept Jesus and what he says is true, so we accept the Old Testament without the Apocrypha. All right, so that's the Old Testament. Let's talk about New Testament, 
all right? So how do we get the New Testament? Well, let's start with the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You guys okay? Am I like blazing through? Like just, okay, okay. I know this is a lot, y'all. Okay, I, I know. But y'all asked. One of you out there asked this, and so this is your fault, person. Okay? Um, so how do we get the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, the Gospels are written accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus from people who were actually there. Or in the case of Mark and Luke, Mark and Luke were 100% there, but they wrote their Gospels based on eye, uh, firsthand witnesses of Jesus' life. Like Luke did a bunch of research to compile his Gospel. Mark's Gospel is based on Peter's firsthand experiences. But the interesting thing is this, and you may have heard this if you heard critiques of the Bible, is that the Gospels actually were not the first books written in the New Testament. You think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the beginning, so they were like the first books to actually be written. They're actually not. Actually, Galatians and First and Second Thessalonians were written before the Gospels were written in history. Um, they were written about 50 A.D. The Gospels were written about between 60 and 100 A.D. Now, you may hear that and think that there's something wrong with that, and I'm going to talk about it in a second. But that also means that the Gospels were written down between 35 and 65 years after the earthly ministry of Jesus. It seems kind of problematic, right? Because some critics of the Bible will claim that, well, since it was so long between Jesus and the times the Gospels were written, that means that we can't trust the Gospels because they, you know, like, you know that game Telephone, where like the kids, like well, one will say like a, a phrase and then it goes through all people and they whisper it to each other and then the, the 10th person in the row, they say what they think they heard and it's like way different than the original message. Some people will claim that the Bible in the New Testament is like telephone, that like it began with one thing but by the time it got written down, it's way distorted. It became, you know, mythicized and fabricated and all this kind of stuff, you know, and I understand that argument but that's honestly not the way that things worked at that time in history because that's to apply modern criticism to ancient culture. Ancient culture in many ways was very different than our culture because think about it, at that time when the gospels were, you know, begin, begin to be written or even in the time and ministry of Jesus, did many people know how to read and write? No, very few people knew how to read or to write. So what would it matter if they were writing down books to hand to people when they couldn't read it and they couldn't write it? Like that was not a primary way of communication. It was mainly, especially in the Jewish culture, it was an oral culture. It was an oral culture. Most people couldn't read or write, so there was no need to immediately write it down. And people in oral culture were capable of recalling and repeating oral history incredibly accurately. They were way better at memorizing stuff than we are today because they had to. All right? They were kind of pressed into it. Like As children, many people memorized large amounts of Old Testament law and stories. Like Some of the Pharisees were said to have memorized the entire Old Testament. I don't know how you do that, but that's, they, they had this brain capacity for it because of their culture, and they would use like mnemonic devices and patterns, all kinds of stuff to memorize this stuff. They would make songs up and all this kind of stuff, but it's an extremely oral culture that committed lots of things to memory, and even, uh, even as the Christian church began to arise, you know, Christian communities, they would begin to work together to keep these oral histories true to the source, because if you think about the early church described in Acts, they were incredibly tight-knit communities. To where, you know, as they're circulating and telling these stories to each other of Jesus, if someone began to get like a story wrong and said that, you know, Jesus did something he didn't do, then someone in the church would be like, no, no, that, that's not right. That's not what he said. That's not what he did. And they would correct it because of the community that was in place there. But also remember that eyewitnesses kept testimonies of these original events. That during the time that the gospels are circulating through oral transmission, the people that wrote these things down or, or saw these things, they were still alive. 
They were alive to check out this kind of stuff. So if people began to claim that Jesus had not been risen from the dead, people that literally saw him could say, yeah, no, he did, and vice versa. So people who literally saw the resurrected Jesus firsthand, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. They were alive while the gospels were being spread orally, and they also were alive, some of them were alive even when they were finally written down. So people started sharing things that weren't true. There were possibly thousands of people that could correct them. And when the gospel, gospels were finally written down, they were written down during the lifetime of the people that were firsthand eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. So yes, while there is a lot of time between when Jesus walked the earth and the time that the gospels were written down, there is a lot of, there's tons of supporting evidence to show that the gospels give an accurate account of the real life and ministry of Jesus. All right? So that's how we got the Gospels. How do we get the epistles, which are like the letters of the Bible? They make up the, rest of, the bulk of the rest of the New Testament. Well, as the church began to grow, Christian leaders began to write letters to churches and to other Christians to help them apply the truth of Jesus. And these letters were usually spoken out loud. So like Paul, when he usually writes a letter, he's not sitting at a desk like writing. He's probably, probably chained up in a prison, but he's, he's speaking to somebody else who is writing this stuff out for them usually like a secretary, they would write it onto a scroll and then they would hand that to a messenger who would then carry that letter to the church or to that person. And then in that church's gathering, that person would read that letter out loud to the church. And many times, once that letter got read, that letter would then be copied a bunch of times and it would be shared with other churches. But hey, did you hear what Paul said to the church in Corinth? You hear what Paul said to the church in Galatians? This is really good. We need to hear this. And it would get spread as these letters got copied and people began to recognize that these letters had some kind of authority to them. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. So that's how we got the gospels and the epistles. But here's the big question. Who determined then what books made it into the New Testament? Because you hear all these stories of all these extra books outside of the New Testament. They say extra letters that didn't make it in there. So who determined what made it in and what didn't? Was there like a, a voting process for like all these you know, like priests at one point like had like a th- like card they raised up like an auction to say, yes, we'll put you know, Romans in there. No, we won't put, you know, the gospel of Thomas in there. You know, how do they, it wasn't that way. That's not how it worked, okay? So what happened is this, is that the early church immediately began to recognize most books that are in the New Testament, they began to recognize that they were authoritative, that they were divinely inspired. Uh, Most of the books in the New Testament were not debated very much. They were inspired scripture. Because we see Peter calling Paul's writing scripture even during his lifetime. There were some that were more debated, like Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. They were not initially accepted, but over time, not a long period of time, but over some periods of time, they began to be accepted as canonical. And so in the fourth century, what happened is that the church at that time said, you know what, it's time for us to settle this. It's time for us to make a complete decision on what is the New Testament canon. So in the East, it was determined by, um, sorry, in the East, it was determined by the list mentioned in a letter by a church leader called Athanasius. Athanasius writes this letter on point where he lists out what he thinks is the New Testament canon, and the church sees his list, and they're not, they're not, they're not just like, okay, Athanasius is awesome, we'll agree with him. They're like, oh no, we, we recognize that we agree with this list, that we have our own list that agree with yours, and so we'll affirm this. That was the church in the East said that. But the church in the West, the canon was fixed at this council, this council called the Council of Carthage in 397 AD. And at that council, there was very little dispute about what should be considered canon in the New Testament. 
But here's the thing. It's important to remember that the church in the Council of Carthage did not vote and determine, okay, this is what's in the New Testament now. We have decided. Really what they did was they simply recognized and affirmed what was already there. They didn't determine it. They received it. They received, hey, this is what God has already determined. I love this quote from J.I. Packer. He says it this way. He says, the church no more gave us the New Testament than Sir Isaac Newton gave us gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation. And similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. You know, discovering gravity doesn't mean that you invented it, right? Just more, any more than the church discovering the New Testament meant that we made it up and chose it. It was received as authoritative. It was recognized. It wasn't voted on and chosen, okay? But the question is, what standard did they use to determine what was authoritative? You know, how did they really agree that this is inspired scripture? Well, I'm glad you asked. There's three things that they used to say a book was canon. There's three tests. Uh, the first is conformity. I think it's on here. Is, is this on here? The conformity? No, just kidding. No, it's not. Okay, so the first criteria is conformity. Uh, did the book confirm to, conform to excuse me, the Christian truth recognized as normal in the churches? If it seemed to teach some kind of weird doctrine that didn't agree with the rest of the doctrine of the church, they likely didn't consider it as canon. So conformity. Did it conform to Christian truth recognized in the churches? The second is it's a hard word, apostolicity. There we go. Apostolicity, which means this, you know, was the writer an apostle? Or did the writer have immediate contact with an apostle? Not like I heard from some other guy who says he's friends with Paul that this is true. No, like Mark has a, you know, direct account from Peter, right? Luke had firsthand interviews with apostle, with uh, disciples and with people who had seen Jesus. Firsthand accounts, not kind of passed down the line. So conformity, apostolicity, and last, lastly, Catholicity, which is not like the Catholic Church we think of, but this means, did the book have widespread acceptance in the Catholic Church, like the overall church at the time? Because if it wasn't widely accepted at the time, they're like, okay, there must be a problem with this. We're not going to accept it, okay? But if it had widespread acceptance at the time, it was considered for the canon. So conformity, apostolicity, Catholicity, all right? And the fact that everyone was able to agree on the New Testament canon, really honestly, if we think about it, is a miracle in and of itself because of how many Christians there were at the time who had so many reasons to debate what should be in there. I think it's evidence that the Bible was divinely inspired. All right, so we have that. So what about the lost gospels? What about, uh, who wrote the Da Vinci Code? That guy, whatever that guy's name is. What about those things that we hear in, I've never seen the Da Vinci Code. I just heard it's a movie and a book that people watch and read. But, you know, you may have heard that there were other gospels out there that didn't make it in. And they teach some things that were really interesting, like Jesus was married, you know, and the, the church at the time didn't want that stuff getting out. So they, they hid this information to keep their power and authority. That's kind of what the Da Vinci Code is about. You hear this kind of stuff, and it's only, well, Jesus was not married. But the other gospel stuff is only halfway true, because they claim there's hundreds of them. Really, there's, there's only about 30 other gospels that we have copies of. And honestly, every one of these things is universally accepted to be pretty fake, and to be not trustworthy. Uh, these other gospels were written about 100 years after Jesus lived. Most of them were 200 years after Jesus lived. They're really late. And none of these gospels were hidden from the church. We have lots of records of early church fathers calling out stuff like the Gospel of Thomas saying, yeah, this is like, 
not true. <laughs> this is so fabricated, so made up. Don't trust this. We have records of this kind of stuff. But just get, consider one example of how weird some of this stuff is. This is from the, the ending of the Gospel of Thomas. And ladies, I apologize for this scripture, okay? But it says this. It says, Simon Peter said to them, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the ladies in the room want that, right? Okay, yeah. Do you think this is trustworthy? No. Does that agree with the rest of the New Testament? No. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So I hope you don't think so, okay? So this is the kind of stuff that's in these other gospels. They were obviously just out there kind of stuff circulating more. This is the kind of stuff that Paul addresses in 1 Timothy, the speculation, all that wild stuff. This is the kind of stuff he's talking about, okay? So in all those false gospels, they easily fail the tests we mentioned a second ago, okay? Last thing, and we're gonna be done, all right, is so how accurate then are, or is your modern copy of the Bible? Because obviously it's been a long time since the New Testament was finished, especially since the Old Testament was finished. So how accurate is your copy? Because you may have come across something in your Bible before and came across a note that says like, you know, some early manuscripts do not contain this verse, you know, or early manuscripts, you know, contain this extra thing. You may have read that and thought, oh my gosh, like, can I trust my Bible? Are these, are these other copies out there that I don't know about that have extra stuff? That like, you know, what am I supposed to do? Well, don't freak out, okay? Because yes, there are lots of copies of the Bible called manuscripts out there, but there's a lot of consistency in these things. Because yes, the Bible we have today is not based off the originals. We don't have the original copy of Romans. It's long since disintegrated. But the copies that we have are copies of copies of copies. They're, they're copies of these books. The originals wore out. Because think about it, there was no printing press for a long, long time. I don't remember when Gutenberg invented the printing press, but it was way after uh, the New Testament was finished. So the only way they could transmit this stuff was copies and copies and copies. So what happened? Like, were there mistakes that were made? Because some people will claim that because we, we have copies of copies of copies of copies that the telephone game happens again. That, you know, the original maybe said one thing, but the 10th copy got way off and it's teaching something completely different. Can we trust it? Well, yet again, it's more complicated than that. That kind of misses the important part of how manuscripts were made. Because once a manuscript was copied, it's not like they threw it away. They're like, okay, we copied it, throw it in the trash. No, they would keep these things and they would use them to compare later copies. Like copy number eight would get compared with copy number two to make sure they weren't getting off there. But also the Greek text that we have in our Bibles today is not based off really late copies, like the ones that were copies of copies of copies of copies. But the Greek text we have today that your New Testament's based off of is actually based off of taking thousands of copies of manuscripts that we have and being able to, through this thing called textual criticism, scholars can take these thousands of copies and they can actually begin to figure out, okay, the original manuscripts, the early ones would look and read like this versus these late ones that had a slight variation. And so they, through this science that I don't even understand about textual criticism, they can get incredibly accurate representations of what some of the original documents were like. Because through archeology, span we have thousands of copies of the New Testament. Actually, we have about 5,000 copies, either fragments or whole books, of the New Testament, and some of the copies we have are no later than 100 years after the original was written. They're super, super close to when the original was written. And just consider how fragile papyrus is. Like, that paper stuff just disintegrated so easy. But consider how insane it is that that stuff was able to be preserved. It's almost like God wanted it to be preserved, right? But 
Yes, there are minor variations in it, like you can read some of your manuscripts and talk about it, or your footnotes in your Bible. Because think about it, the people that were doing the copying of this stuff, they were human beings. In the, in the Middle Ages, there were monks who sat in monasteries and spent like their whole life just copying copies of books. And they would write these little notes in the sides about like, letting you know like different things to know about. And sometimes they would make little comments about how they were feeling at the time. There's one fun note that one monk said, I am cold and I have to pee. Um, and so, <laughs> but he said it in like Latin or something, you know, but it really, it's, it's in one of the copies we have. He's like, I'm cold, I have to pee. Um, they, they, made, they made these side notes, you know, about the copy and sometimes what they had to do with their bowels. But, um, but the thing is, yes, sometimes these monks and copyists, they would make mistakes sometimes. They would you know, make a, a copy the wrong way. But so many of these were simple things that are obvious. Like they're like they're, um, misspellings or like a, a slip of the pen. They're really easy to see and correct. And when it comes to the more difficult variants where some manuscripts you know, don't agree quite as much, we have so many copies of these things that we can easily begin to figure out what is erroneous and what is not. Because the copies aren't divinely inspired, right? But the originals were. And so in the few instances where we're even uncertain about the original reading, there are no variants in the New Testament or the Old Testament that ever change anything that we, what we believe about the Bible or about Christianity, Christian doctrine. There's no variance anywhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament that changed anything about what we believe about God or his work in the world. So the short answer to your question, can I trust that my Bible is authentic to the original text? Well, yes, because yes, it's true that we don't have the originals of each book, but it's also true that we don't have the original copies of like any ancient document. Uh, We don't have the original copies of the works of Plato, we only honestly have about 210 copies of, the, of Plato's books, and those copies were made about 1,000 years after the originals. But like I said, we have 5,000 copies of the New Testament, and we have fragments that were copied just decades after the originals. They're way more close to the original date. We have way more copies, and we have so many copies of even the full New Testament from early in church history. So we trust Plato, we trust Aristotle, So we have way less copies of those things. Why can we not trust the Bible? We have so many more copies of that. And the thing is, if you have a good modern translation of the Bible, the truth is you probably have the most accurate copy of the Bible that any Christian in history has ever had, aside from the person sitting in the church in Rome hearing the book of Romans. Like so much scholarship has happened over recent decades to give us probably the most accurate copy of the Bible you could ever have in the history of the church. It's pretty incredible. And then obviously tonight we won't talk about too much with translation, but I did want to mention briefly just the idea of translation to remember that, yes, when you read your Bible, you're not reading in Greek. You're not reading, well, you're probably not. If you're reading in Greek, I'm really impressed with you, but you're probably not reading in Greek or Hebrew. So remember that the translation that you have today is that. It's a translation that it is based on a certain school of thought on how you get to it, but every translation has its strengths and weaknesses. And so, you know, you have to determine on your own which ones work best for you, but always view them as a tool. Because, you know, I, I like the ESV, I like the NIV, I like the, uh, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible is a really good one that's, that's newer. Those are kind of three ones that are my favorites. But there are lots of good translations of the Bible. The more important thing is that you're using one to help you read the Bible. There's some bad ones, like uh, the, the Passion Translation. If you're using that, throw it away, okay? For real, don't do it, don't do it. It's, it's, it's based off 
not scholarship. It's based off a false understanding of who God is. Just throw that thing away. It's not accurate. Okay, I can tell you why if you want to get into it. But that one, don't read, okay? Um, but other ones like ESV, NIV, CSB, even the message is not a translation, but it's a paraphrase that can be helpful. Don't, don't let the message be your only Bible. It's a paraphrase. It's not based on direct translation, but it can be a helpful supplement, okay? I'm not dissing the message. Uh, the, Eugene Peterson has some great stuff in there, okay? But recognize their translations, and so use those accordingly. But the Bible that you have is incredibly accurate. So what I, what I want you to finish with is this is that knowing tonight that the Bible you have is trustworthy and ultimately it's supernatural. That like we started with, it's God speaking his word to us. That we as Christians today are incredibly privileged that for generations, most people couldn't read first off, but also for generations and generations, most Christians didn't have a copy of the Bible. Like if you wanted to even read the Bible, you had to go to the, the local church and then it probably was written in Latin and you probably didn't speak Latin. So good luck even understanding that. Some of the priests at the time didn't even read Latin, but yet they were teaching the Bible somehow to the people. You know, that's why we have people in church history who literally gave their lives for the Bible. They, they died and were considered heretics for a long time to get the Bible to the people, to get it converted into English. I was telling the guys a minute ago about this one guy who got the Bible to the people and literally later on about a century uh, 50 years after he died, the church finally decided they didn't like that he got the Bible to the people. They dug up his bones and burnt them and threw his ashes into the river 50 years after he died because they called him a heretic later on. <laughs> uh, that was uh, Wycliffe, the Bible translator. And then John Huss, who came after that. We have this legacy of men and, and women all throughout history who have literally given their lives for us to have the copy of the Bible we have today. So let's treasure it. <laughs> let's read it. Let's study it. All the things we talked about last week, right? Because it is God's supernatural word to us. He's given to us for our benefit, all right? So with that, I know I was long tonight, but it was a lot of information. So I wanna give you guys maybe 10 minutes to discuss at your table just a couple of questions um, that I think can help you maybe just process and reflect on this tonight, and then we'll wrap up, okay? So let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We thank you for the incredible gift of your word. Uh, that it is really supernatural. It is your words to us. I pray we would treasure it. We would memorize it. We'd meditate on it and allow you to speak to us through it. Pray in Christ's name, amen.